This is Jared O'Brien for the Christians Engaging Culture podcast. Christians Engaging Culture exists to equip the members of St. Thomas's to give a faithful answer in everyday cultural conversations and to turn those conversations to the gospel. We've now finished our training module on religious liberty on the website, but there are some extra resources on the topic we're releasing on the podcast for a few weeks. Last week, we listened to Martin Isle's talk from when he visited St. Thomas's on the 25th of August, and we had dinners as a church community after the evening service. This week, we're listening to a Q&A session we had after his talk. These are all questions from St. Thomas's congregation members that were voted up and down by the people at dinner. You can find every question in the episode show notes. We hope you find it helpful. Okay, my question for you, Martin, has to do actually with co-belligerence. That is, you are kind of an umbrella organisation for many kinds of types and flavours of Christians. Uh, Many, I would say, uh, I would disagree with, and many, I'm sure, would disagree with me about what it means to, um, to be a Christian, things like that. How do you operate in a field where you, you are bringing together so many diverse and different people? Um, well, once you start, you, you learn something. And uh, dare I say, oh, thank you, uh, dare I say it, um, which is that, you know, I used to, thank you, I used to be in, in, a, in a denomination that was reasonably closed, you know, uh, and didn't assume that there was that many good Christians out there. Um, that couldn't be further from the truth. What you learn when you engage with the body of Christ across Australia, with, with Christian believers, is you suddenly discover that God's people are found everywhere. And every church has amazing Christian people and total rotten eggs. Every single one of them. Uh, and it's amazing to work with those whose hearts God has moved to act and to stand up and to be a part of something And I have found the most wonderful Christian people across a whole spectrum of denominations. Many of them are where they are despite, despite the teaching or despite the specific circumstances of where they are, because everybody knows that wherever they are, even St. Thomas's got its faults, right? Um, Less here, obviously, (laughs) far less, don't worry. But... um, you know, most people don't live in the catchment of North Sydney, so they've got trouble. But, uh, you know, there's, that's a reality, and I, I, I find it very easy to work across denominations. Um, there is a challenge that presents, though, which is where do you draw the line? Mm. Uh, and effectively, we've decided to draw the line roughly at the uh, Nicene Creed. Uh, and if people... So, you know, if you've got cults, that you know, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, if you've got... Uh, groups like uh, Islam and others that may cross over with us on some values. Uh, you just want to be careful, very careful. You know, you, there are certain things that you will help out with, but there's a level of closeness and connection and working together that you will avoid. Yeah, mm. okay, thank you. Okay, the first question from the crowd, which I'll, I'll ask here, is for the non-lawyers among us, what are the current religious freedom laws and limits in Australia and how do they different? differ to other countries. And can I just, before you answer it, put a plug in. I sat down with Roy Williams, one of our 5pm members, to do an interview about this very issue, which is launching on the Christians Engaging Culture website tomorrow. So log in there and you'll see that. Get on the podcast and you can listen to it. An expanded answer to what Martin's about to say now, I'm sure. I think think you've answered the question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, um, the law in Australia on religious freedom is basically silent. Uh, It's been that way for a long time. It used to be the case in all common law jurisdictions like Australia, the UK, New Zealand, Canada, etc., that you didn't have laws on human rights issues. You didn't have laws on religious freedoms, really. You had Magna Carta, but that was all part of the common law. And effectively, um, silence just meant that people... Well, people used to agree with each other. They used to all be Christians. When Australia was founded, 99% were Christian. Uh, And so there wasn't this kind of... This, this, this massive disagreement about deep, enduring moral questions to the same extent there is today, but also there wasn't the legal infrastructure for people to divide against each other and fight with each other in courts of law over what effectively are disagreements. Uh, the anti-discrimination frameworks we have in this country have divided us like nothing else. Uh, we are hauling people off to tribunals, we are in the back rooms of commissions, we are, and it's all because you said and I disagree. And rather than talk about it, rather than resolve our differences, we just 
start to sue. And so we have a legal framework now that's created conflict. We also have a cultural soup that is conflicted. And so all of a sudden we're arguing about who should be free to do what, because we all disagree with each other. So it's a modern advent, and in Australia we don't really have any laws set up to define that. So we have some form of non-establishment in the Constitution, is that right? Non-establishment of yes, religion? Yes. So but that's just for the federal government. Well, yes, so the freedom of religion, don't let anyone say to you that section 116 of the Constitution protects freedom of religion. It doesn't. It was as one uh, legal, I think it was Anne Toomey, one very distinguished constitutional law academic said, strangled at birth. Because somebody said way back in the First World War that they had a conscientious religious objection to conscription. And the government wasn't able to make a law uh, that limited the free exercise of their religion and conscripted them to the army. And the High Court went, well, that won't do. And so they pa passed a verdict that basically made that section mean nothing. So yes, it is a non-establishment clause in the sense that the government cannot create an official religion, mm. but it doesn't achieve anything in respect of Commonwealth laws that may, in their effect, limit freedom of religion. It simply doesn't apply. And so the laws that come into play <coughs> now are the different anti-discrimination laws yes. across the states and federal So government. you have anti-discrimination laws which have created a number of problems for religious freedom, and you have some patchwork, uncertain, different in every state, exemptions to those laws that sometimes people can scrape through on and say, but there's an exemption to the law, I'm safe. But those exemptions are different in every state. They're uncertain, they're very, very narrow. Um, there's no actual legislation for religious freedom at large. And that's what you'd argue we should have, some form of legislation for religious freedom, advocating for religious freedom? Yeah, I think we probably have arrived in a situation uh, where that a well-drafted religious freedom bill is, uh, would be extremely useful. And better than the exemptions which could be overturned by tomorrow's government. Oh, and they, the courts already are limiting their effect desperately. There's a case, Christian Youth Camps in Cobor in Victoria, which basically made the Victorian exemptions u largely useless. Uh, but Victoria had the best exemptions, believe it or not, it's a miracle, uh, Victoria had the best exemptions in the country. So. Um, uh, the courts are already narrowing them down uh, and uh, we, we find ourselves in, in a difficult situation. Next question here is, how do we balance recognising that unbelievers aren't expected to obey God's law with lobbying for Christian laws, for example, marriage equality and abortion debates? Yeah, so um, I, uh, unbelievers are not expected to obey God's law, but um, we are expected to proclaim the truth of God's law in this country. And we need to understand that in God's ways and God's law is great blessing for others. However, as I said at the start, I don't believe we should do that as an end in itself. We should be doing it as the prophets did, which was to call people back ultimately to God uh, and to say, yes, this is what's true and testify to that truth so that people might not just see it, but there's an opportunity for their conscience to be activated about it as well. Mm. Um, you know, we don't just advocate to say that abortion is a bad idea, but we say, look at what you're doing. Why are children suffering like this in our time and in our world? And what's happened to us that we think this is okay? And call them ultimately back to conscience, back to God, back to what Christ says. Uh, and, you know, I often say in my truth of it, you know, one of the great problems with abortion uh, is that there's many women who have been down that pathway. And I talk about the uh, mercy of Christ. Uh, in, in holding high his mercy and the fact that he says, those who come to me I won't cast out. And guilt can make you do two things. You can fold into yourself and close up and you can harden yourself and you, it, will, it will destroy you ultimately, whether you know it or not, or it can drive you to Jesus and it can take you to the light. So I think that we are called absolutely to proclaim and declare truth at every turn, but I do think we're also called to proclaim and declare Christ at every turn. And I think the two are actually like that. They're, yeah. they're together. And when we're talking about laws and whether they're Christian laws, what does it talk about here? Lobbying for Christian laws and, not rec and trying to recognise unbelievers unexpected to obey God's law. Like all law will be legislating some form of morality. Oh, yeah. Like you can't help it. Of course. Yeah. If, yeah. You, if you say to a murderer, don't murder, that's a moral law against the murderer. Yep. And so in some ways we need to be less afraid of that idea and say, well, if, we're going, if, if law is imposing morality, legislating morality... We have to say, well, whose morality is it? Yep. Where does this morality come from? Law is moral by its very nature. 
you know, Paul says, what do people with governing authority do? It's actually a fact that they're declaring what's right and wrong. That's what law does. Uh, William Blackstone, one of the uh, original, you know, one of the, the greatest common lawyers in the English tradition, he says, what is a law in our system? It's a rule of right conduct. That's what it is. It's basically writing down a code that says, hey, this is right, this is good, do this. Uh, you are legislating a moral framework no matter how you skin that cat. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's and just whose framework it. are you going Ex to use? Exactly. And so if we're Christians, we want to do it lovingly for the good of our neighbour. Correct. Based and, on truth. And you want to do it for, um, this is something we've lost uh, in the modern West, we want to do it for the weakest and most vulnerable among us who will inherit this, this society, which is the children. Mm. Uh, Jesus was very specific about his care and concern for kids. Uh, and, and, and how cautious we have to be about that. And if you care about a new generation growing up in this time, uh, coming to a knowledge of the truth and finding salvation and, and, and being, you know, not being put on hormone therapy, for example, and squirreled down that avenue, or not being whatever other avenues there are, uh, you must do this. You must, because they don't know right or wrong. Uh, and so it is up to us to ensure uh, that they're protected. Next question is, what does it mean, you said earlier in church, what does it mean that you don't believe in human rights law? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so, um, it depends what you mean by human rights. That's the first important thing. Uh, ultimately, I don't believe in that phrase and that concept because what it assumes is that humans have rights. They have something that they can assert over against the world that rightfully is theirs. I don't accept that concept. And I don't think that, that concept is found anywhere in the Bible. And the only reason we found ourselves there was that in the post-war era, when they legislated international human rights, they had to find a grounding and a basis for absolute statements of freedom and rights and dignity. And they gave it the wrong answer. They said the basis is in the human person. The fact that we are humans, we have rights. That's what they did. That's a completely upended wrong way of viewing the world. You think of how Jesus describes our responsibility in this world. He says it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. His entire statement of our, of, of our life here is around duty, not rights. The only question you ask is what am I obligated to do to God and my neighbour? You do not say what am I entitled to? Nobody ever tells you to say that in the Bible. And instead what you do is you you live life out of duty. Now, there's a problem there because everyone says, well, if you've got a duty to someone, it means they have a right. It has to. That's the other side of the equation. Well, not in Jesus' world because he says, no, you love God. Why? Because God has the right. He claims it of you. And you love neighbour. Why? Because your neighbour has the right. No, because God desires that of you too because he made you and made your neighbour. So God has all the rights. He's the only being in all the universe that can assert that over against the world and say, this all belongs rightfully to me. We have duties and duties alone. It's the same with the state. The state, what? It has a duty to God to be his minister and servant for righteousness. We are commanded strictly to submit to the state. Why? Because it's our duty to God who ordained the state for our good. Um, it's all duties. Sorry, folks. No rights. So human responsibilities. Human responsibilities. Human we need to yeah, legislate some of them. Yep. That's <laughs> the next question is, how is the High Court decision, and you might need to explain this one, how is the High Court decision in Comcare versus Banerjee, legal for APS to be fired for tweets, affected oh, that one. your yeah. approach to the religious freedoms and Falau debate? Um, you might have to explain the case first. Yes, okay. Uh, so this is a case of a public servant who worked for the Department of Home Affairs, I think, and effectively she had an um, anonymous Twitter account and she was tweeting uh, criticism of the government and the department and its policies and attacking her employer, which was the government and the department, uh, many, many times over a very long period of time. I think it was thousands of tweets that she put out. And then one day someone figured out who she was. Uh, and problem was she worked for that very department that she was smashing all the time on online and she lost her job. And she lost her job and she challenged that and she said, no, it is my freedom of political speech that enables me uh, to make these tweets and keep my job. And uh, there's a whole constitutional argument around that. It's quite complicated and you can go through the constitution and figure out you know, your arguments with the High Court. High Court said, sorry, lady, the firing was completely legitimate. And then a lot of people came and said, well, that spells doom for Israel Folau. It actually doesn't because Israel Folau's case is not constitutional. 
Israel Folau's case is not a case of him attacking his employer and undermining his employer and the person who signed his contract. Uh, Israel Folau's case is under a discrimination law uh, framework, which is, or part of that, which is nested within the Fair Work Act, uh, and it is actually about his uh, entitlement to do things that are consistent with his religious faith in his private life. There is not one argument from that case that will be raised in Israel Folau's cases. In Israel Folau's case, not one. Uh, and but what I would say is. Um, it is a very tricky area, this, to figure out, well, what are employers entitled to control uh, in the private lives or conduct of their employees? Um, and there are certain exemptions to, there are certain um, things that they can control. So if you are a religious employer, you can have religious requirements of your people. Obviously, it's why you exist. You're there for religious promotion. You wouldn't get an um, atheist minister at your cor church. Correct. It doesn't make any sense. Or you wouldn't get someone who uh, goes out on the Sea Shepherd and, 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 and sabotages Japanese whaling ships uh, and is, a, is an out-and-out -out Greens member, uh, you know, working for Fraser Anning. Uh, you know, it just isn't going to happen. Uh, political, and that's an extreme example, but even the Liberal Party or the Labor Party, they don't want people in their party who are signed up to someone else. Yeah. So if it's got a political purpose, of course you can discriminate on politics. If it's got a religious purpose, of course you can discriminate on religion. But if it doesn't have a religious purpose or a political purpose, if its purpose is, oh, I don't know, the promotion of sport, uh, or if it's an airline providing travel, uh, it has absolutely no business entering into the politics and religion of its employees. Mm. Um, there is... Another question that arises, which is, well, is someone able to openly denigrate their employer, attack their employer, act in a way that is inconsistent with them respecting their employer? I think not. I mean, it, it kind of... I mean, if I had a staff member who went out there and was just, like, smashing the ACL in the press every day and saying what a wicked bloke I was and, you know, secretly I'm just a, a monster and all the rest of it and all their policies are anti-Christian, I should be able to fire them. I'm like, well, you're not really working for us. You're working against us. Uh, and so that's the case that we're talking about. And I don't have such a concern with it. I understand people who raise the political speech issue. Um, probably the p working for a government is not a great spot to be if you want to be a political activist. People have to relinquish their party membership to work for us, for example. Uh, it's always been that way. Um, so I'm not too concerned about mm. it. Yep. Are Muslims and Muslim businesses targeted at the moment in the same way as you have outlined for homophobic beliefs? If not, why do you think that is so? The answer is no. The answer is people are scared of them. That's a quick answer. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, people came to me and said, well, about the schools thing. Well, why, don't, what, why aren't the Muslim schools mm. concerned? I said, well, because they just won't obey the rule. Right. And what are you going to do? Yeah. Nobody's going uh, to do anything. It's already the case um, that a blind eye is turned... For example, uh, there's, many, there's Muslim communities where they practice polygamy and all this kind of stuff, you know, and the authorities know about it and they do nothing about it. It's just not enforced. Uh, and we have a massive enforcement problem around a lot of those things. There's a fear factor. There's also the fact that most of the people... You've got to ask if the laws exist, who's going to use them? And the people who are going to use them are the people who think that Christianity needs to, needs to get a serve. Uh, and they're people who are more sympathetic to other minority groups. Uh, and that's also a, a flavour here. So there's a fear factor. There's also the fact that the people who actually sue, who are not us, it's them, uh, uh, are going to target certain groups because mm. of their, the, the way they think about the world. Another question I'd ask is, you're having a conversation with a friend about r some religious liberty issue. It could be the Israel Folau case, if that flares up again in the mm -hmm. next few months, or it could be some other case that comes up. How, you're having that conversation with, I don't know, someone at at sport, beside a sporting field. Mm -hmm. How do you turn that conversation then to the gospel of Jesus? Mm. How would you do that? I, I do it this way. I mean, firstly, it always starts on a freedoms basis because that's an easy in. Uh, you know, I was talking to a guy in a servo a while ago. Um, uh, he he, he criticised my, my clothing and, uh, and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm speaking at a conference, actually, because it was on a Saturday. And he said, what conference? And anyway, we got into a chat then and we reconciled. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and as part of this chat, he said, What's the co what, what are you speaking on? And uh, I said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on um, uh, religious freedom. And he said, what does that mean? I said, well, Israel Folau. I said, there's a classic case. Uh, and I said, you know, people don't like what he said, but should he be sacked? Should his GoFundMe page be shut down? Should his wife be targeted? You know, should his, the people who then took up his fundraising efforts be investigated by the ACNC? This disproportionate, you know, hit the guy with a politically correct baseball bat response because he spoke... 
I said, is that reasonable? And he sort of went, oh, yeah, okay. Uh, and, and I said, well, I said, all you're left with then, if you're going to say it is reasonable, is, well, therefore, everything I disagree with and don't like should be illegal. And you're going to make the world in your own image. I said, how is that good? You're never going to hear anything you disagree with. You're never going to... And so we started to talk about that. And then you can turn it around to say, and also, um, what about arguments about the truth? Doesn't the truth hurt? Isn't the truth sometimes offensive? Doesn't the truth sometimes come to us and, 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 and confront us? And, and, and you can turn freedom for religion to freedom for truth and have a truth conversation. And then get to the gospel? Well, yeah. Because you How could just you say, well, I just say, well, for example, this is what I believe. Yeah. I mean, that's how it worked in the Israel Folau stuff. So you go on the project and they'll say, do you believe homosexuals are going to hell? Mm. And you go, well, let me tell you what I do believe. Mm. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, turn to him, you'll be judged, yeah. you know, whatever you want to say. Um, just literally get there and say, say just, just say it. And Don't Jesus dance around the edges, yeah. just go for it. Um, I great. mean, that'll create conversation <laughs> or they'll run, you know. But yeah. you never know if you put a rock in people's shoe. That's a great line yeah. I learned from someone. You can put a rock in people's shoe so they, they think about this. And it, it, it can... Look, someone said to me at a conference in New Zealand, wasn't Israel Folau tone deaf? And I said, well, he's tone deaf for the present audience, right? That's not the, it's not the things we put on our Instagram. But, you know, does it mean that you can't talk like a footballer anymore if you're a Christian and you're a footballer? Do you have to be a lawyer? Do you have to have a master's degree? Do you have, like, why can't you just speak? And how do you know what God does with the actions done by people out of a pure motive? I was in Western Sydney and a guy got up to give his testimony. They had these two testimonies at this church I attended uh, before a speaker, international speaker was there I wanted to hear. And this bloke got up to give his testimony. He was from Vietnam. Uh, and he moved to New Zealand. He was working in New Zealand. He was a Buddhist. And one day at his desk, a colleague just walked up to him, leans over his desk. He's like, hey, Burke. He's like, yes. He said, you're a sinner and you need a savior. <laughs> and then sort of didn't know what else to say and walked away. And I, I sort of have this vision of the guy in the bathroom going, oh, you know, what have I done? You know. I mucked it up, I got a mind blank, I tried to witness, you know, something like this. But it's funny, um, Burke, this guy, uh, went from his office and he said over a period of six months, he just couldn't get it out of his head. <laughs> and he said everything that he did, he thought, I'm a sinner. <laughs> and then he'd have this big blow up with his wife and an argument, and he'd be sitting in the corner, he'd think, <gasps> I'm a sinner. And it just hit him and then blow me down. He's in Western Sydney a month ago giving his testimony at a church and saying, I found the Lord Jesus and the joy of the Lord's all over his face. And so I'm like, you don't know. This is, we, we think it's up to us. It ain't up to, if it was up to us, we wouldn't win anything. Exactly. Nothing at all. Because you can be sure that if you're ever Israel Folau, the thing you did won't be perfect. Mm. And every man and his dog will be like, well, that wasn't very nuanced. That wasn't very winsome. You could have been better. Hey, I've got better theology than you, by the way. Uh, it's like unhelpful, right? Uh, people are doing things in their own way, in their own world as best they can. And if it was up to us beyond that, we'd be in a world of pain. But Jesus says, well, Paul says, you remember this is the power of God. Uh, and God does these things and God changes hearts. The outcome is above our jurisdiction. We're just called to be faithful. I know Israel well. I know he was being faithful. I know that was to the best of his ability, sincere. Uh, and what happened? Well, we got to proclaim the gospel on national television several times. Um, I had a great old chat with Neil Mitchell on 3AW in Melbourne where we really went around the details on this um, and talked about sin and all sorts mm. of stuff. And it's just a remarkable opportunity. It's and made so many gospel opportunities. Absolutely. And even little things. I was on Sky, which was really hostile, funnily enough. I wouldn't expect it to be recently. This guy was saying, he said, well, he said, said, I've read Galatians 4, whatever, and and, and homosexuals isn't even in there. You know, Israel has misquoted this and he's misrepresented. It's all rubbish. And he reads the whole verse. And I sort of let him sort of string up his own noose a little bit. And then when he finished, I said, well, that's because Israel was referring to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Um... (laughs) And I said, do you, want me to, do you want me to read it for you or say it from memory? I said, you know, do not be deceived. Neither. He said, all right, all right, all right. And he finished. And then at the end, he said, oh, look, I'm sorry I didn't have all the details on that. And I said, I said oh, look, don't worry, Tom. I said, I would say this, though. Keep reading the Bible. It'll do you good. Um, and 
you can just keep throwing things out. Uh, and it's an opportunity. We can either run like rats from a sinking ship and hide in the corner and go, yeah, look, we're not like him. We're a bit smarter. We're a bit more nuanced. We're kindly people. We don't really think quite what he thinks. Or you can give it the beans and you can take the opportunity. That's great. This is going back to what you were saying before in your talk. Why does God give governing authority to corrupt people? Oh, that is a mysterious, yeah, goodness gracious. It's a bit like the why evil question. Uh, you know, why Hitler? Why? Um, that's a very interesting... You could say, who else is he going to give it to? <laughs> yes, that's a good answer. <laughs> I like what he said, yeah. Uh, who else is he going to give it to if not corrupt people? Yeah, that is absolutely true, and it is always a feature of a fallen world. Um, that, and like I said, we have Christ's perfect kingdom to look forward to, 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 to know of and to, to, to use as the anchor for our soul and the hope that we have. Um, and we have to, because every single thing in this world will always fall short. Uh, and, you know, evil will grow, and the guy I'm named after used to say something. He said, if you look at history, he said, you always see evil growing and getting greater and greater and stronger and stronger. But he says, it only ever gets so far and God stops it. He steps in. And usually he uses a righteous person. You know, the story of the Bible is God changing the world through a righteous person. You know, seek first righteousness, right? Everything else doesn't matter if you can't string six words together. He can use people. I mean, Moses couldn't. Um, he can use people uh, who, who in those dark days to do great things and that's all he ever does and you know all the tyrants of this world uh, show us that um, but also I often use those uh, conversations as opportunities to talk about justice because I used to do a school camp in Tasmania for year 12s and one of the biggest questions they had was how can a just God judge uh, and I'd say well how can he not like think of Hitler are you serious? Like, was that just a mistake? No, the universe is just, God is just, nothing will escape and he will judge and there will be justice. Uh, so this is another great chance to mm. talk, yeah. There's um, a few school students here, Wear at Purple Day is one of the oh, topics gee. here in um, these questions, Wear at Purple Day is coming up. Oh, by the way, if you still want to ask more questions or vote some up, there's still opportunity. I'm looking at this live, so if there's ones you want to see, vote them up. Um, where a Purple Day is coming up, what's your advice when schools and workplaces are expecting everyone to participate? Uh, this is hard. It's really hard. I've got to say... Actually, could we describe what Wear a Purple Day is? First? Oh, yes. Maybe so Wear it Purple Day, yeah. Uh, it is a day where effectively everybody in the office is asked to come to work wearing something that's got some purple in it, whether it's a jacket or a tie or a pocket square or a shirt or maybe you want purple everything and the whole point is to uh, celebrate pride basically um, and to uh, you know show solidarity with the LGBT community um, and it's it, it, it really is an outworking of uh, the end of Romans 1. In Romans 1 you see what culture demands around these issues it says first they will suppress the truth about the issue uh, and then they will exchange that truth uh, and then they'll worship and serve creature rather than creator and then once they're, once they're serving the creature and saying, you know, everything that comes out of them is good and right, that'll lead to certain practices. He identifies the sexuality stuff specifically. And then he says, and then what they're going to want is approval. Uh, and the demand then is approve, approve, approve. And if you don't approve, that's the sin. Um, and that's just becoming true in law. That's becoming true in workplaces. That's becoming, it's like your ticket to belonging. It's a little bit like, like, a, like a bit of a mark of the beast kind of thing, you know? I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but, uh, <laughs> I'm not gonna, but I'm just saying, you know, it's one of those moments where you say, yeah, here's something that's placed on you in society to say, are you worthy? Are you a good person? Uh, and so it's hugely challenging. Um, I would say this, you can't, we can't approve. We can't do that. We just can't. Uh, you can be as kind to people as anything. You can be the most decent individual in the world. But approval, celebration, you can't do it. Uh, and that's what Romans 1 teaches for one thing amongst other scriptures. Um, and here's the interesting thing. There was a man who had his own wear at Purple Day in the Old Testament, uh, in a sense. And, you know, it was Daniel who faced a moment of testing. Uh, and Daniel actually was asked, you know, to participate in the eating of this food and, you know, this program that the king had put together. Daniel was probably a teenager uh, at the time. And you can think to yourself, Daniel... 
you know, you could go far. You've been selected. You're a chosen one. You're in this special program for elite students to, you know, serve in the king's household. Keep your head down, you know, do the right thing. There's a career ahead of you. There's great influence that's coming up, you know, just, just do all the, just compromise. And Daniel just says, nope, I cannot do it. And it's interesting, as far as I can tell in Daniel's case, I'm not sure that it would have been a sin to eat that food. But obviously Daniel felt in his heart that to honour God, he couldn't do it. And it was God honoured that, that he believed earnestly and, and sought to serve God. And a maniac of a king that could have killed him in a moment and probably would have under any other circumstances. You can imagine the eunuch just going, oh my goodness, how, like we're both going to die. Uh, what is wrong with you? And he says, I won't do it. Uh, and what happens? Well, Daniel is chief advisor to three m- more kings in the, you know, he's, He's a man who God looks... I always say to young people, that was the first day of the rest of his life. Mm. And it's the same with Joseph, with Potiphar's wife. It was the first day of the rest of his life. God saw it and he went, uh. God, Joseph said, how can I do this sin against my God? He said, God is watching and that's all that matters and I can't. And I just say, never lose that conviction. Never lose it. Um, it's easy for me to say because I've ripped that band-aid right off and uh, I've walked away from the legal career and all the rest of it. Uh, but, you know... You, the, I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. The Lord will look after those who, who serve him, uh, come what may. Uh, Philip Ruddock's Religious Freedoms Report found no examples of real disadvantage because of religious beliefs. How does he miss all the stuff that you've shared? Well, I sat down with him and went through a three-page case list uh, or three-page of little tiny s- summaries uh, along with some extended material. Uh, and uh, we were there and we talked about it, we went through it, uh, and because he, he said, I don't have any examples, and I said, well, I've got some for you, mm. and I went through the whole lot, uh, and we talked about it, so um, it's just not true. And then he kept saying, I don't have any examples. Well, he wrote down, we didn't have any examples, but they surely did, right. um, they surely did have examples, they were given, uh, and they were, now, we're now using those examples in the present lobbying process, so we're meeting with the Prime Minister, the Attorney General, and others, uh, and um, we have got many, we've got pages and pages and pages of case studies. Uh, and we've been in to see the people who are actually drafting the legislation. Uh, we've raised all these issues, we've talked about them. We're doing a briefing in the Parliament House in a few weeks. So uh, mem- uh, ministers, senators and, 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 and members are all coming to this briefing uh, where myself and um, uh, the current director of the Human Rights Law Alliance are doing a briefing. It'll be on the exposure draft of the bill to say, here's the bill, here's our case list, is it going to solve the problem? Mm. So there's great opportunities there, but insofar as the Ruddock Review goes, well, he said that uh, and it's completely unfounded because I was there when we went through the cases. People have said they are disappointed that ACL has donated to Israel for Falau's legal defence when he has enough funds of his own. Can you explain? Sure. Um, A few things. So, firstly, on the funding issue, so uh, the Israel Falau thing actually created an enormous wave of popular support. It created a statement, the political effect of which is still not over. those donations that came in, the optics around that, the championing of the cause, it wasn't just to stand with the guy and help him, but it was also because there's a huge long, long-term impact of this. I was talking to a senator just the other day, and they said to me, look, do not be despondent about Falau. Before Falau happened, you couldn't get an intelligent conversation out of a government minister or MP on religious freedom, no matter how hard you tried. Today, since that happened and since the popular outpouring of support from thousands upon thousands of people in such a short period of time, she said, everyone wants to know, uh, you know, how can we stop this, talking about religious freedom, it's, it's a free-flowing discussion. We sat down with the Attorney General's department and the legislative drafters and the first thing they said was, well, here's something we've written, will this stop the Falau case happening again? Uh, now, the impact has been enormous and I was involved in this as much for that impact, because that's ACL's MO, mm-hmm. as, as I was and I definitely was also in it to help the guy. Mm-hmm. You say, does he need our help? Well, you know, let's be human and empathetic for just a second. Um, the poor guy, he lost, he lost everything. 
Uh, his, his career, his rugby, his sport was everything to him. Uh, it's all he had. It's the only thing he'd done since he was a teenager. He had no other qualifications. He's played sport. He loves sport. He's obsessed with sport. Uh, and he expected to have, you know, he's the number one super rugby try scorer of all time. Uh, he expected to have a long and fruitful career. And then one day they turn around and say, it's all over. He's still struggling with that. It's really challenging. I mean, the guy needs a lot of support. Uh, not only that, but they say, well, he's rich. Uh, well, it's very Australian to be like, well, you know, smash the rich guy, let him hang. Um, look, having some assets is not the same as having liquidity. Uh, also, we don't know uh, much about the mortgages on the homes that he owns and things like that. The reality is he sat and said to me, I can't actually afford it all. Uh, I can afford, and he didn't expect to raise all the money. He thought he'd get some and he'd be happy with some. But he got the lot because people wanted to give it to him. And I'm fine with that. Um, and uh, uh, I suspect a lot of it will probably go back to the donors in the fullness of time, actually, um, because he can cover a lot of it himself, and he said so at the start. But it's been a great outpouring of support. Yeah. It's changed. Yeah. I mean, the guys... People, people saying oh. they want religious liberty. I mean, it was a strength, to, to, strength to his arm and just really um, has helped uh, enormously, yep, and it's made a massive political statement. This one's similar to before, but it's been voted to the top, so I'll trust you on it. Um, thinking about laws and policies, why is it okay to impose Christian values on non-Christians? Well, because Christian values are good. Because they're true? They're true, they're good, they're beautiful. <laughs> what what <laughs> other values do you want to impose on people in the force, force of law? Uh, what do you mean? Like, what other values well, exactly. would you I mean, you've legalize. got to impose something else if it's not God's. Uh, and God has said, you know, this is the world, I made it, this is the parameters around which it operates. And the best thing that we can do for people, uh, the best thing we can do for the world, is to call them to that, to that, that paradigm. Um, and as I said about all the things before, for the sake of children, the next generation, for the sake of, you know, just basic love of neighbour, and for the sake of the opportunity, which it ultimately comes down to, to proclaim Christ and witness in the world. You need that freedom. You need that respect for truth. You need that love. You know, if the law enshrines a lie, like same-sex marriage, you find that God's view of that thing becomes against the law. And so the freedom for the truth on that issue is diminished, right? And that happens always. If you have another value enshrined, the truth about that issue is pushed to the back. The truth about that issue is a weather vane for, lit for, for litigation. You know, we, we, we're suddenly in a situation where uh, 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 the truth itself is inhibited, as Paul said. Uh, and so there is just always, always an imperative to ensure that the truth of God is upheld and respected. It's actually a good thing because as Christians, we sit under an objective standard of truth and goodness. Whereas if it's just might is right, the person who has the power can impose their version of morality they're, they're under no restraint. Look, this is the paradigm in Romans 1. It is either worship and serve creator or worship and serve creature. You're going to do one or the other. And if people are basically little gods and they're saying, what I desire, what I want, my, my, my version of the world should be reflected in law, uh, you're going to walk into a situation that's very, very, very dangerous indeed. Uh, and uh, And... and what you're going to end up with is total fragmentation uh, because you don't have God's standard. You have people saying, no, I reject God. It's my standard. Exactly. It's one or the other. And where biblical Christianity has spread, so is liberty because there are That's people right. who go, I'm actually not the ultimate ruler. That's Jesus right. is the ultimate ruler and I'm accountable and to him. I didn't go into it, but if you read 1 Timothy 2 on, where Paul, for some crazy reason in that moment, where he's like, pray for the government, pray that the truth would be free, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. I'm like, why would he just throw that in there? And it's the simple fact, as Peter says, there's two authorities. There's God and government. Fear God, honour the king, says Peter, mm -hmm. right? And the reality is that if government hypertrophies, if it gets out of its jurisdiction, if it starts to take too much control, uh, if it gets in the way, it can actually demand of people that which is inconsistent with them serving God. Uh, and it can get in the way of our duty to the ultimate authority, which is God. And so uh, if, you, if you allow the government to do that, it, you're in a terrible situation. Uh, you need uh, liberty. This is why Christian, the view of the world is liberty, because there is a higher authority which people must be free to serve. And the government needs to stay in its proper square. Yeah, it restricts the it government. It restricts government. Otherwise, you've got totalitarianism and the government is the only authority and yeah. it controls every aspect of your life, which is not right. Yeah. 
Uh, what political strategies has ACL put in place to reinstate Christian values back into policies and governance at federal and state level? Say that again. What political strategies? I oh know. Yeah. What political strategies has ACL put in place to reinstate Christian values back into policies and governance at federal and state level? Um, look, there's a few things. I mean, um, one of them obviously is the lobbying. Uh, but you'd say, well, lobbying is, is dealing with symptoms largely. Um, lobbying is dealing with, uh, you know, we're a bit downstream uh, from the problem. You know, you've got politicians doing bad things and we're trying to, um, to stop them uh, and trying to be a, a good voice for truth uh, to prevent that from happening. Uh, but there is something else we're doing which is exciting. It's been going on for a number of years, which is that we have the Training Institute, the Lachlan Macquarie Institute, uh, where we have a lot of people who have gone through uh, and been trained uh, who are interested in public life, who are interested in policy, who are interested in all of that sort of stuff. And um, they're all now working in more, you know, prime minister's office, uh, ministerial offices, um, uh, political offices in state and federal level. Uh, we have... Um, Actually, can you give more of a plug for that, the Lachlan Macquarie yes, Institute? Yes, I'd be because thrilled to. <laughs> we have a lot of young people here, yes. and I know one of the guys from our church went through it a number of years ago, but I don't think we've had many more. Can Was that Alex? Yeah. Yes, Alex currently works with me now yeah. in Canberra, yeah. Um, and he's a good egg. So we've had it's a lot fantastic. of good people go through it. Um, so LMI is our training institute. It runs a number of programs. The ones that are interesting for younger people are firstly one called GPS. GPS is for people who are at university or considering university roughly in the age bracket of 18 to 25. We're a little bit flexible at the edges sometimes. Uh, and it's eight days. And it runs in winter and it runs in summer, January and July, I think. Uh, and you come to Canberra for eight days uh, and we always have a few dozen young folk from around the country, quality, quality people actually, really good to meet them, get to know them, but also the lecturers and the quality of the content is off the, ch off the charts, it's brilliant. And it's a basic course about um, you know, Christian thought, Christian worldview, um, an introduction into some of these concepts and topics. Everyone invariably loves it. I've yet to meet someone who says they didn't enjoy it. Uh, but then there is the longer form one, which is for university graduates, which is LMI, the three-month course, or 14 weeks, I think it is. Um, and uh, in that 14-week program, you do intensive theological foundations, you read theology on politics and governance throughout the history, you know, history from the early church up to the post-reformation, uh, you do political theory, uh, and you do uh, parliamentary placements, and you join the alumni network. Uh, it's, I did it. It was great, that's how I got into the ACL world. If you're interested in that stuff, it just introduces you to this world that you're like, oh my goodness, this exists. Like, there's really good Christian people out there doing amazing things and they all happen to be here. Um, and uh, that's worth doing for those who have a particular interest in this stuff. Um, and a lot of the alumni are now in strategically placed, actually. And there's, even right now, there is a federal parliamentarian who is an alumni of the program and is a very, 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 very good person. Yeah, so we're, we're getting places. That's great. How would you respond to a wedding invitation from a lesbian friend? Would you go? Oh, going gosh. is approving. Not going is taken by the friend as rejection or judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look. So personally... Um, Personally, I wouldn't go to the ceremony um, because of the approving thing, uh, uh, the celebratory aspect, the, uh, and it would be very difficult. Um, and uh, it may be that you lose a friend. Um, it may be. And I, I think that we've got to be incredibly careful about how we deal with that with the person and the things we... And I know people who have agonised over this. You know, it's one of those moments in your life you just hope never happens because it's so hard. Uh, but I do know quite a few people who I've talked to, and some work for ACL, who have done that, and it's worked out just fine, in the sense they've actually talked to the person, and because they have that closeness of relationship, it hasn't actually ultimately been an issue. And the people, or sometimes people have sort of said, look, don't even worry about it. Uh, it's, I understand. So you get a spectrum of responses. You get the angry, and you get the, the totally comfortable. And then there are people I know, I'm thinking of a staff member actually, this, this has happened to them twice and they're still very good friends with those people. And I think what those, that staff member did was they went to the reception, uh, but they didn't go to the ceremony. It was kind of like a, a deal thing. I, I haven't actually yet been confronted with that. I certainly have had situations though where, you know, when I took the job at ACL, 
uh, I had a really good friend from school, um, and he was a good friend of mine for years and years, um, and uh, he had come out as gay about 12, 18 months before I took the job, uh, and as soon as I took the job, he just never talked to me again. Uh, and uh, that was someone who I was great friends with for about 15 years. Uh, so you, you can lose friends um, because of what you believe. Uh, and it's up to us to make sure that we are nonetheless blameless in our testimony on this stuff and the way we interact with people, uh, but that we serve God first. And, and Jesus says that. He says, you know, you will lose friends. You will lose family, he says, mm. for my sake. Um, and that's, uh, that's a, a reality that's becoming clearer, I think, as, uh, in our changing times. Yeah. I think this might be our last one. Considering Australia's political landscape, who has it inspired you the most and why? Who has inspired you the most and why? In politics? Is that the... That seems to be the... I think so. I think so. Oh, cool. uh, who has inspired me the most and why? Man, I should have thought of this one before. I mean, you said MLJ before. Would he be well, up there? Yeah. Of course. Martin I mean, Jones? absolutely. Yeah. Number one, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. And, and who else? <laughs> With who a else name is? like Martin Lloyd. I mean, it, it, it can't go wrong. <laughs> um, look, in terms of... Look... The person in church history in sort of the last millennia who I find unbelievably, um, who I res respect unbelievably, I find them an amazing witness testimony example is Martin Luther. Uh, I went to um, Germany in 2017 for the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and followed around his uh, life. And, and did a whole lot of history on him while I was over there. And it was deeply moving, actually, to see this guy who saw the truth and the cost of standing for truth ought to have been his life. It ought to have been his life. He believed sincerely when he went to the Dieter Firms that he would die. Uh, and he did it anyway. And not only did he do it, but he never gave up and he never rested. Uh, and when he got that opportunity, everyone gets the compromise opportunity in their life. And it came to him at that trial where they basically said, if you just recant of this thing you said, you know, it's a bit like Izzy Falau had the same thing. If you just recant, if you just delete, if you just go back on this thing, it'll be fine. And he says, my conscience is held captive by sacred scripture. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Believing he would die. Uh, and moments of faithfulness like that, I think, have defined God's work in the world uh, so often. And through Martin Luther, never clearer. Changed, literally changed the world uh, in, 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 a, in a moment of history. Uh, and you see that in greater, and, in greater and lesser forms all the time. And I wrote... Israel Folau, we sent him, you know, he came to a fundraising dinner with us in Melbourne and, you know, just for everyone to encourage him and whatnot. And we gave him this book with 50,000 names in it to say, we commit to pray for you, you know, we, we, we support you sort of thing. Uh, and I wrote in there the story of Martin Luther because uh, I said, look, I think actually God has used this moment for good. He actually has. Uh, and God often uses these moments for good. That's the Daniel, that's the Joseph, that's the, you know, and it's, it's, it's such a powerful thing to see that fear not, because blessed are those. Fear not, for God is in control. Seek first righteousness. Gosh, it's a, it's a challenging thing to, to, to get into your head. Uh, but I see Luther as like the example outside of the Bible par excellence of that very thing. Yep. So if you don't know about Luther, watch the movie. Read a biography. Yes. Is there a biography you'd recommend from Luther? Uh, I haven't read it. Oh, there's one. I have read one. It was okay. Oh, yeah, actually. Um, sorry, yes. Uh, Eric Metaxas has written a brilliant biography of Martin yeah. Luther. Yes, yes. How could I forget? Uh, I nearly said someone else, but no. Metaxas. <laughs> Eric Metaxas, biography of Martin Luther. Yep. Well, I'm going to close in prayer. So let's pray together. Now, Father in heaven... Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, 
I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, Father, we thank you so much that Jesus has been installed as your anointed king on the heavenly Zion. We thank you, Father, that his kingdom cannot fail, it cannot fall, it cannot totter. It is established forever. It is established on righteousness. And Father, we thank you that Jesus is the almighty judge of all, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we thank you for the amazing blessing it is to take refuge in him. That us poor sinners can find forgiveness in the blood of the Lamb. We thank you that the mighty king is the servant who came. And Father, we, we pray in this world which so often stands against you, wanting to tear off what they think are your fetters and chains. Father, we pray that we would stand with conviction and boldness, knowing that your kingdom will never fail. Uh, we pray that we would have the courage to testify to the mighty King Jesus, come what may. We thank you for our brother in Christ, Martin, here. We thank you for the way you are using him now in Australia to stand up for truth. Please use his example to encourage us and embolden us <coughs> to stand up for truth, Father. Father, we pray you would continue to bless the ministry he does, keep him from the attacks of Satan, guard him, keep him from sin and ungodliness. Help him, Lord, to proclaim the truth of Christ wherever he goes, regardless of the threats. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for the blessing it is to gather as your people, to consider your word, to learn from it, uh, and to grow together. Please, Lord, send us out into your world as witnesses for Jesus and help us to uh, bring many people into your wonderful kingdom of light and life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Christians Engaging Culture. Make sure you discuss this material after church and discipleship groups so we can sharpen one another as a church community. And until next week, remember the words of Charles Spurgeon, If Christ be anything, he must be everything.